0: Let's get back into our message today, and let's talk about the very first thing, which is Mark's longer ending, the disputed 12 verses. If you will notice, if you don't already have your Bibles open, open to Mark chapter 16. And uh, Edwin did an excellent job last week of leading us through Mark uh, 16 up through verse 8. And this month, and, and today, this morning, we're going to end our, it's been almost eight months' study of the Gospel of Mark. And you'll notice at the very end there that your last uh, verses in Mark, 9 through 20, are probably in brackets. And that is because there's a great discussion as to the validity of these verses. Of all the four Gospels, Mark's Gospel ends on a most unusual note. The verses we're going to discuss today are some of the most debated and controversial verses in all of Scripture, and you ask why. Well, I'm glad you ask. We're going to spend just a few minutes talking about this, because I do want to cover the end of Christ's earthly ministry here, and uh, still finish on time. And so... We're going to jump right in and talk about the weirdness here of uh, Mark's ending. To start with, these last 12 verses are actually not in the earliest manuscripts. And many church fathers, as well as church historians and Bible scholars, do not believe that these words are the inspired words of Mark himself. John MacArthur, Tom Pennington, and so many others that you would know agree that these were all scribal notes that were added sometime after Mark ended his inspired writings. Open your Bibles to Mark 16, and I want to read, starting in verse 1. We're going to read 1 through 8. So if you're not there, turn to Mark 16, and we're going to start in verse 1. And it reads, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might come and anoint him, him being Christ. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb. When the sun had risen, they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter... He is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Mark's ending has no recording of Jesus meeting with the, gosp- uh, the disciples, Or anyone else. There's no ascension. There's no great commission. It just ends with, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So most Bible scholars believe that some well-intentioned scribe, while copying this gospel, decided to help Mark by giving the story a more summarized ending. Now we know from research that Mark was the first gospel to be written. And I believe that Mark's abrupt ending in itself was probably motivation to the other gospel writers as they read it to have a more detailed ending of Christ's earthly ministry. Matthew records the soldiers' report to the Jewish leaders and Jesus meeting the eleven in Galilee Luke records Jesus walking with the two men in Emmaus, and an appearance to the disciples in an enclosed room. And John writes two complete more chapters, 56 verses, of things happening. After Mark's short and abrupt ending concludes, Folks, I submit to you that after reading all four of the Gospels, some scribe that was assigned to copy Mark's gospel felt like Mark's gospel needed a little revisionary help. And so he inserts these 12 verses to tie up the loose ends. They're not inspired, but they're well-intentioned. And oh, by the way, in some of your Bibles, you may even see another summarizing ending that's included It reads this way, And they promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions, and after that Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. No scholar, no scholar whatsoever, gives this particular ending any credibility at all. It was another scribal addition. So we will not discuss this one at all. But back to the other one, scholars believe that this longer ending, as it was referred to, was first inserted in about the mid-100s A.D. But the question remains, why didn't Mark finish his gospel? Or did he? Books have been written on this, but most scholars believe it was one of two reasons. Either Mark meant for it to end in that exact way that he wrote it, to show the power of the resurrection and how it astonished and perplexed people, but also frightened his followers. It could have been that, or secondly, for some reason known only to God, he was prevented from writing a longer ending. And many preachers throughout history have chosen to not teach these verses. And most commentaries include MacArthur's commentary does not dissect dissect these 12 verses at all or add any commentary to them. Instead, they spend all their ink on explaining how and why Mark's gospel ended at verse 8. If you're interested in hearing uh, a more full and eloquent uh, response to this, on March the 23rd of 2014, March 23rd, 2014, our own pastor Tom preached a message on Mark's ending. And I encourage you to listen to it as Tom does an excellent apologetic of defending the position of Mark's inspired words ending in verse 8. Honestly, the other Gospels fill in the details much better than Mark's longer ending, which we're going to talk about this morning. Suffice it to say, these verses are almost certainly not the inspired work of Mark, the author. But, but it's still worth discussing them since each of the major topic that these verses discuss are verified by inspired scriptures in the other Gospels. So it's not like they wrote a bunch of falsehoods here. Okay? So having said all of that, let's jump in and let's talk about... The first appearance, the woman, Mary Magdalene. And we're going to read Mark 16, 9-11. Verse 9 reads, Now after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping. When they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. Okay, as you can tell from the initial reading of these three verses, the writer, or this scribe that we don't know who it is, this unknown scribe, they show an abrupt introduction here. For example, Mary Magdalene was mentioned in Mark fifteen forty. She was mentioned again in Mark 15, 47. She's mentioned again in Mark 16, one. And now it almost feels like the writer feels a need to introduce Mary to the readership again. And that's one of the ways that scholars are saying this cannot be Mark's writings. And so that he inserts... This phrase, from whom he had cast out seven demons. This is a quote from Luke 8, 2, when Luke first introduces Mary to his readership. So if Mark had been writing it, he wouldn't have known about Luke's gospel, would he? Because it was written after his. And yet it's in a direct quote. But then the question quickly arises, and I'm sure you would probably think so as well, wait, there were some other women with Mary at the tomb, so why are they not mentioned? It is because this is discussing Jesus' first appearance to a human being. There were women at the tomb that saw an empty tomb, but they didn't see Jesus. But now this is a recording of Jesus' first appearance to a person. You can read about it. Flip over with me to John's Gospel, John 20. Start in verse 1. John 20, verse 1. It reads, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already rolled away from the tomb, so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and we know that to be John himself, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciples went forth, and they were going to the tomb. All right, now skip down to John 20.10. 20, 20.10 20, reads, So the disciples went away to their own Homes. Now look at John 2011. But Mary, so Mary stays. The rest of them leave. Mary stays at the tomb. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. Skip down to John 20 16. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Reboni, which means teacher. And then in John 20, 18, it says, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So you can see from John's gospel, John's inspired writings, that this event is quite plausible and most likely very accurate of what happened. What we see here is a reunion of one of Jesus' most devoted believers and her Lord. John records that Mary fell at His feet and was clinging to Him. Clinging means to adhere to, to fasten oneself to, to hug intensely, Mary had watched her Lord die and be buried, so she wasn't about to let him go quite that easily. She wasn't going to shake hands and say, Good to see you, and then leave. She falls at his feet and hugs his feet. Folks, can't you just wait? Don't you look forward to the moment that Jesus speaks your name? And he smiles at you and hugs you so tightly. What are you going to do in that moment? You know, there's there's a great song written by Mercy Me called, I Can Only Imagine. How many of you have heard that song? Yeah, I Can Only Imagine. I don't know about you, but I'll probably do just what Mary did and fall at his feet. In humble adoration and worship. And I'll probably be speechless. Which will be a new experience for me. (laughs) Okay. Let's get back to our text. As we read in verse 11. We discover that the disciples did not believe her. And that's understandable. We probably would have said. We don't believe you either. So let's don't. Chastised them for that. This was the first appearance of Jesus. Now let's see the next one. The second appearance as recorded in the longer ending of Mark. Talks about the walkers, the men of Emmaus. Mark sixteen twelve and 13 read this. After that, he appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking along on their way to the country. They went away and reported to the others but they did not believe them either. After the interaction with Mary, Jesus appears to two men on their way to Emmaus. And now this interaction on the way to Emmaus is recorded in Luke 24, and the story goes from verses 13 all the way to 35. In Luke twenty-four thirteen, it says, And behold, two of them were going... That very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And you're familiar with how the story goes, and so we'll discuss it here in just a second. But one thing I want you to note is it states here, he appeared to them in a different form. Now, don't take that like he appeared to them as a donkey or a frog. He didn't take uh, that kind of shape. But what he appeared to Mary like, what did Mary think he was when she saw him? A gardener. So he was wearing clothes that would fit what a first century gardener would have worn. All right. But why would he do that? And so that he would do that so that he would not be treated differently. Kind of like the, you've seen the show The Undercover Boss. You know, where they go in and they dress up like one of the workers. And they're, but they're the CEO of the company. He was incognito. That's kind of what Jesus was here. And you know the story, Je- Jesus walks with these two men, and they don't recognize him. And Jesus says, to, do you realize how hard it is to find a picture, or even a drawing, where he's in regular clothes? rather than, What you see in 99.9% of any drawing or photo is this his clothes are brilliantly white took me forever to find a picture that would represent him wearing just regular clothes. He, Jesus says to them in Luke twenty four twenty five, He said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe, and all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Can you imagine that commentary? Talk about historically perfectly accurate and absolutely true. Wow, I would have loved to have been a fly on one of those guys' shoulders just listening to Christ tell it. And then we know that they end up going to Emmaus, they beckon him in to eat with them, and then when he blesses the bread, they recognize him, and he disappears from them. And the author of Mark's longer ending concludes this interaction with the same result as in the story of Mary Magdalene. They did not believe them either. You know, there were many doubting Thomases among that group of apostles. We just know one that got singled out. But that is all about to change with these apostles when we see his third appearance. The third appearance is the warriors, the apostles of Christ. Verse 14 reads this, Afterward he appeared to the leaven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he approached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. He chastises these men because they did not believe what these people had told them. Eyewitnesses had told them. So what we read now is the appearance of Christ to His apostles. Some commentators believe this is the first time He appeared to them without Thomas, and that would be supported by John's recording of John 20, verses 19 to 25. But that raises the question of the inclusion of the number of disciples present, which says is 11. Well, we know that there were not 11 at that time, because Thomas wasn't there and Judas was dead. There was only 10. So the answer some uh, scholars give is that the scribe who recorded this, in Mark's longer ending, used the term, the eleven as a title to refer to the disciples as a group rather than an actual number of attendees. They were referred to as the twelve. In Matthew 26, 14 it says, Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest. Or in Mark 6, 7, where it says Jesus summoned the twelve. So there was already a pattern of them being called a name as a group. Just like we're Bereans, they were the twelve. In this case, now without Judas, they're the eleven. This is obviously before Matthias has been uh, brought into the group. So if that is true, that it was really just uh, a title and not a number of attendees, then it's quite possible this could be the first meeting. The other reason that this could be the first appearance to the apostles is that Jesus chastises the apostles for their lack of faith. In his second recorded appearance, when Thomas is present, he singles out Thomas for his lack of faith, but not the rest. But uh, there are other scholars who believe that this event is where Jesus appears in their midst when Thomas is present, and the number 11 mentioned is referring to those that were in the room at the time. And we don't know exactly which one it is, but I, for one, am in agreement with this being representative of the first appearance, and I base that that because of the recording of Jesus chastising all of them for their hardness of heart, versus just singling out Thomas. Regardless, though, I want us to cover, pretty quickly, five aspects to this meeting, okay? Let's see, the very first one is the appropriate chastisement. And we just read verse 14 that talks about, He reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen Him after He had risen. You know, Jesus, as lovingly and as patiently as He has been with His followers, was not afraid to point out their simple lack of faith. You can kind of use your sanctified imagination to hear their conversation. One of them is saying, no way does a man raise himself from the grave. Jesus raised others like Lazarus, but nobody can bring themselves back to life. Another is saying, it must be someone who looks like him. When they're referring to Mary coming and telling them, or the, the two men uh, coming and telling of the two travelers. It just must be someone who looks like him, and they're just playing a cruel joke on us. But it really couldn't be him. Another is, by the way, if he was going to appear to someone, don't you think he would have appeared to one of us? First, and not to Mary, or not to two strangers on a road? Don't you think he would have come to us? It just makes common sense. So you can see where in their minds they are saying, we don't believe you. I mean, you're being genuine, but we don't believe you. You can think of other reasons why they wouldn't believe, but now with him in the room, they can't deny that he's alive. And Jesus chooses this time to reproach them for their lack of faith and hardness of heart. The second thing we see from this is the authoritative command. Mark 16, verse 15. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. Now this part is found in... Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. This is the Great Commission. So it recounts another verifiable scripture, another divine scripture. And here we read of Christ commanding them to spread the gospel. And his command in verse 15 is followed up in verse 16 with a confirming statement about salvation. And, I didn't, yes, verse 16, about talking about salvation. Do you see the controversial aspect in verse 16? Can you see that? It's the part about has believed and has been baptized, shall be saved. Okay? I want you to understand here that this is not saying that you must be baptized to be saved. That would go against the sufficiency of Christ's work in his death, burial, and resurrection. And what every commentary I research asserts is that this statement is simply mentioning baptism as an obedient act that follows the act of salvation how do they support this well it's right here in verse 16 where it says at the end of verse 16 where baptism is not mentioned those that will be condemned according to the second half of verse 16 are those who have disbelieved not disbelieved and not baptized Or simply, not baptized. It is those who have disbelieved. The other evidence that baptism is not a necessary element of saving grace is pictured in the thief on the cross. You and I know very well that the thief on the cross never got baptized. And we'll talk a little bit more about him in my summary today. The third aspect is the affirming confirmations in verses 17 and 18. These signs will accompany those who have believed. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will pick up serpents, and if if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Here Jesus goes on to tell his apostles... What powers will accompany their gospel efforts? These statements would not have been shocking to them. Why? Because he's already given them these powers before when he sent them out two by two. Remember that? These powers were temporary and yet confirmed the words they were proclaiming about Jesus. The only questionable statement here is the mentioning of the ability to handle snakes and to drink poison without being harmed. This is the only place in Scripture where these extraordinary powers are mentioned. And I, for one, wish they'd, they'd never been mentioned, because it entices spiritually immature people to believe this applies to them. And sadly, even today, some misguided individuals in certain cults have taken this as truth, And they take it as a test of their faith. And in the process, some have handled snakes. They've been bitten and died. And this is just abject foolishness. The writer here is only trying to convey the idea that while the apostles were fulfilling their responsibility to spread the gospel, that even unusual, deadly things would not prevent them from finishing their mission. Just like there was nothing, nothing was going to stop Jesus from getting to the cross. It just wasn't going to happen. He was going to get to the cross. Same thing here. A perfect example of this is when in Acts 14 19 and 20, verses 19 and 20, remember in that particular. Uh, Situation. The people had stoned Paul and had left him for dead. They thought he was dead. And yet, Paul gets up and goes back into the city. Christ was not going to let Paul's ministry end right there under those stones. That's all they're trying to do here. Christ was promising these men that they would fulfill their mission that he had declared to them. The fourth thing is the ascending into the clouds, verses 19. So then when the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. This verse is verified in Luke 24, 51, and it's verified in Acts 1, 9. As the recounting is indeed a divinely inspired, proven event. But I I want you to think about for a minute. All the actions, all the events, all the happenings that the apostles actually saw and heard. Can you imagine what they experienced? This ascension by Jesus was really the culmination of all the mind-blowing things that the apostles had witnessed Jesus do. Think about it for a minute. Just contemplate what these men have experienced. You know, Jesus started out pretty slowly with the changing of wetting water into wine, and that probably had them scratching their heads thinking, how did he do that? But it progressed from that to the healing of leprosy the healing of blindness, the casting out demons, and healing a variety of other diseases and disabilities. But then he took it to another level when he calmed the angry wind and the roaring seas. And to top that off, they were able to witness him bring two different children back to life. And he showed them his Shekinah glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then for the finale, he walked on water and he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, even when he should have been quite decayed. But this tops them all when not only does Jesus rise again from the dead, but in human form he bids them farewell uh, farewell, and simply rises into the sky. Folks, they witnessed a man levitate and fly into the sky, and the clouds accepted him, and he disappeared among the clouds. You know, I'm always mesmerized by magic tricks. Maybe some of you are as well. But I know when I really think about it, you know, I'm, I'm initially just kind of like, whoa! You know, but uh, when I think about it, I know it's some sleight of hand or some smoke and mirrors type of tricks, no one gets cut in half and then glues their body back together. It just doesn't happen. I'm sorry to disappoint you. And no, folks, David Copperfield did not make the Statue of Liberty disappear. It looked like it did. But listen, listen to me. The miracles and supernatural things that Jesus did were not cheap parlor tricks They really took place. And these men saw it. The water was water, and in an instant it became wine. Jairus' daughter was truly dead. Jesus raised her. He raised Lazarus. And so he raised himself. Jesus has power that is unimaginable. There's no marvel character that's going to take him down. And he displayed so many of these divine powers not to entertain people. That was not the purpose of it. But rather to authenticate his ministry. And this rising to meet the clouds was the grand finale. And we've got one last thing. The actions of the courageous. Verse 20 says, And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Well, this, is, this verse is the ending, or the longer ending, of Mark. And the apostles each did their part to spread the message that Jesus proclaimed. And as we know from tradition, that each of the apostles met a horrific death apart from john and that was because of their proclamations of the gospel they gave their lives for christ they truly did spread out among the known world and many died in foreign hands at the foreign lands at the hands of godless people but they finished the race They finished what God had set out for them to accomplish. And he gave them the power to perform signs and wonders to validate their message of salvation. And I want to personally challenge each of us in here today that we should do the same. We should fulfill the ministry we've been given to proclaim the gospel. Whenever God gives you that opportunity, take it okay let's finish up as we discuss the application for our life my beloved Bereans as we finish this magnificent gospel of Jesus Christ let us always keep in perspective the truth that you and I are not capable of gaining entrance into God's heaven. You and I cannot do that. We're simply the beneficiaries of someone else's sacrifice on our behalf. Jesus in Mark's Gospel is portrayed as the suffering servant. He served the lowest and the downtrodden and he suffered greatly, wouldn't you agree? For us, He's the one who gave up His glorious place in the celestial heaven to hang on a cross and die a horrific death for my sins, for your sins. Is He not worthy of our praise? His suffering sacrifice between two thieves was emphasized in a sermon that I watched by Pastor Alistair Begg. And I'm going to show you a two-minute clip, just a very short clip, from that sermon, which includes one incredibly profound truth that we should have learned from our study of the Gospel of Mark. Now, Pastor Begg is preaching at a conference in Texas, and yes, in this, you're going to be able to hear a train in the background. I think the train just happened to go by at this particular point. Let's see if this works.
1: And, and, and you were getting entry into there. What would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believe, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. What an immense, I I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him. How did that shake out for you? Because you were, you were, you were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You, ne- you didn't know a thing about a church membership. And, and, yet, and yet, you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said. You know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. <laughs> what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, uh, did, <laughs> excuse me, let me get my supervisor, I'll get my supervisor in here. <laughs> so, just a few questions for you. First of all, are you, are you, are you, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? Guys, <laughs> I've never heard of it in my life. And, and what about, uh, let's just go to the doctrine of scripture immediately. Guys just and eventually, in frustration, he says, on, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. Now, now, that's the, that is the only answer.
0: That sums it up, doesn't it? And may you and I keep that truth in mind, that the man on the middle cross determines whether you and I walk into heaven or not. And it's nothing that you and I can do. No scriptures we can read, nothing we can memorize, no good acts we can do. I don't care if you've led four million people to Christ. The man on the middle cross still determines whether you step into heaven or not. He said, you can come. And as we finish with some lyrics from the song, Before the Throne of God, I pray that you remember to always speak about your salvation in the third person because this... Because this... And I can't sing it, and I wish I had Gary plan to do it but because the sinless savior died my sinful soul is counted free for god the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me let's pray lord thank you for your word that so deeply touches our heart. Help us, Father, to understand the truth that Mark's gospel was teaching us, that he is the suffering servant, that it is because of him and him alone that we have the ability to have entry into heaven. You're so good to us, Father. You have blessed us in so many ways. Let us not have the unbelief that we can do it on our own. I pray that that touches deeply in the heart of every person within my hearing today. And I pray in the name of the only name worthy to be prayed in, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Messiah, our Savior, and our Lord. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.